You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, North Korea's military says its recent series of missile tests were practices to strike South Korea and the US. We'll have the latest from Seoul on how to cool an increasingly tense situation. Also ahead will be in Egypt as COP27, the climate change conference, kicks off. We'll examine why Washington is privately advising Ukraine to say it's ready for talks with Russia. We'll have the latest art news, look through Monday's papers, and we'll hear about the winner of this year's Wildlife Photographer of the Year as well. That's all coming up on Monday's Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Residents in Kyiv have been told to prepare to leave if there is a total loss of power in the Ukrainian capital. Apple says China's COVID policy is hampering its efforts to make iPhones. And the Irish airliner Ryanair has posted its largest after-tax profit in its history for the first half of its financial year. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, North Korea's military has said its recent series of missile tests were practices to mercilessly strike key South Korean and US targets. Meanwhile, on Friday, South Korea detected 180 North Korean military planes flying near to its border. It scrambled 80 fighter jets in response. To get the latest, let's hear from James Fretwell, an analyst at NK News based in Seoul. Good afternoon or good morning, James. Good afternoon and good morning to you. Good to have you with us. Um, could you just explain uh, or, or just sort of flesh out this this uh, plan to mercilessly, mercilessly, I should say, strike key South Korean and US targets with these missile tests? I mean, you know, where to start? I mean, normally when I um, have, the, have the pleasure of being invited on Monocle, we're discussing maybe one or two North Korean missiles, looking at that particular missile in a bit more uh, depth. But there have just been so many recently over over the last month. I mean, North Korea in one day uh, last week launched uh, something like I think it was 23 missiles. Uh, there have been uh, air drills, hundreds of planes from North Korea and also South Korea in the U.S. in response. I mean, you know, it's, it's really been uh, everything going all at once on the Korean Peninsula. Um, the biggest, um, perhaps, uh, out of the North Korean missiles, um, they did try and launch uh, another intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, and those missiles are um, capable of hitting the American mainland. Um, South Korea initially assessed that um, it exploded, um, so it, it failed. But still, I mean, that's that's quite a big step up and all of the shorter range uh, missiles you know even though they're not aimed at the american mainland uh, they are aimed at south korea and they do demonstrate that uh, hey if there is a war we can hit you um very hard from numerous different locations and remember that north korea is also 
trying to develop tactical nuclear capability. And that's something that the North Korea Watch community has been um, keeping an eye out on on uh, for the last few months, really. When when will North Korea conduct its seventh nuclear test? And it could be uh, any day now, really. And we suspect that that nuclear test might be for a, a smaller warhead to fit on one of these shorter range missiles. How is this changing life for people in South Korea and indeed Japan? There were evacuation alerts last week, weren't they? So there is a sense that this is now beginning to touch you. Uh, you know, in in uh, South Korea, yes, there's always that uh, looming threat of, of North Korea in the back of your mind. And as you say, in, in Japan as well, there are um, evacuation warnings that go out whenever there is uh, a North Korea missile launched. Um, yeah, these these missiles really ramp up tensions. They get everyone worried. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, ironically, they also uh, really strengthen cooperation between the US and its allies in the region. Um, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, relations between South Korea and Japan in particular are historically a, a not very good uh, due to Tokyo's colonial rule of the peninsula between 1910 and 1945. Um, and as a result, the US always finds it very difficult to get South Korea on, and Japan on the same page um, regarding North Korea, even though you think they they face you know sim- similar security concerns. But with all these North Korean missiles going off every, every other day, um, it really does kind of uh, strengthen the case uh, from South Korea's perspective for the need to cooperate more with, with Japan in the military domain. And I think we're going to see uh, only more military exercises on the land, sea and air um, with with the US in particular and also uh, with Japan to a certain extent. These exercises last week certainly um, prompted North Korea to, to push harder and harder and harder. But when it comes to the North and Kim Jong-un's determination not to push back... Is there a sense that he's trying to almost play catch-up post-COVID to make sure that the, the, the nuclear arsenal is modernised and, and he he can sort of meet, you know go back to his plan that was waylaid by, by the pandemic? I don't think the missiles were necessarily delayed by the pandemic. Um, I, I think he's launching them now because we have, uh, well, partly because North Korea always wants to uh, develop its, um, you know, uh, nuclear weapons arsenal, make it as uh, threatening as possible to deter an attack from the US and South Korea. Um, but also remember that from um, earlier this year, we have a new South Korean president. The former um, was uh, from the opposition party, uh, the Democratic Party in Korea, um, they're always a, a little bit. They want they they pursue a more reconciliatory approach to North Korea. If we can all just get along, then maybe we can uh, we can fix the problems on the peninsula. The ruling party now, the Conservatives, the People Power Party, they take a much more uh, aggressive, no nonsense stance toward North Korea. So South Korea at the moment now is really pushing to bolster military ties with the U.S with Japan and North Korea sees this and it thinks, right, we also have to make sure that our military capabilities are as strong as they can possibly be. And of course, this creates this, uh, you know, series of uh, escalations and it's not clear who's going to 
back down first, basically. Um, and hopefully things cool down before we see uh, some kind of miscalculation where there are casualties involved and uh, things could really uh, kick off in a bad way on the Korean Peninsula. There is a determination by both sides, isn't there, for for there to be no backing down. In fact, it, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, this thing is speeding up. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we have to remember that over the, the course of Korean history, um, since the Korean War, the Korean War was obviously the big one where hundreds of thousands of, of, of people died from many, many different countries. Um, but uh, also there have been military skirmishes since then. And every time they happen, they draw in a lot of countries from from the attention of a lot, a lot of countries from the US, from China, from from Russia, from Japan. Um, and there's always the risk that one of these military conflicts, even though they might only result in the deaths of, uh, I, I say only, of course, every death is, is tragic, but relatively speaking, compared to the Korean War, even though it's a relatively small amount of, uh, of deaths, they can, these, these skirmishes, these conflicts can, there's always been the risk that they evolve into something more. And uh, as, as the capabilities on both sides um, of the uh, DMZ in both North and South Korea, as those military capabilities evolve, uh, the, the potential scale of catastrophe um, also gets bigger and bigger. So where is the space or the scope for a cooling down? You know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, after North Korea conducts its uh, next nuclear test, which we think could happen any day now. They, they appear to have completed all preparations for that based on satellite imagery. Um, South Korean intelligence reportedly, uh, this is according to a South Korean lawmaker, um, intelligence uh, a couple of months ago suggested that this nuclear test could take place uh, after China's party congress, but before the U.S. midterm elections, which are right around the corner. So um, it, the nuclear test might be happening very, very soon. After that nuclear test, uh, there are going to be U.S., South Korea military drills, some of which I'm sure will involve Japan as well. There are going to be sanctions. Um, and then after that, we've, we've got to see whether North Korea, how North Korea will respond. Are they going to respond with even more military drills, maybe more nuclear tests? Or are they going to suddenly uh, open up and try and uh, cool tensions down and try and open up another round of diplomacy? North Korea tends to go in, in cycles of building up to big missile tests and nuclear tests. And then suddenly when uh, when tensions are just about to reach boiling points, they go for the diplomacy route and and try and relax things and present to the world an image that, uh, you know, if we all just uh, talk out our differences, everything will be OK. And that stops things from the North Korean leadership's perspective uh, from getting too dangerous. So perhaps that will happen this time. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. James Fretwell, thank you as ever for joining us on the line from Seoul. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is a Globalist. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, 
their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. am here in London, 2.12am if you're listening in Washington, D.C. Now, the next few days signal a turning point in U.S. politics. The midterm elections mark arguably the end of the Joe Biden unchallenged tenure in the White House and the start of a run towards the 2024 presidential elections. As is usually the case in politics, a vote midway through an election cycle is often an opportunity to give those in power a kicking. But how much will these elections genuinely change America's political direction for the next two years and beyond? Well, I'm joined by Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Just remind us what happens this week. Yes, so tomorrow Americans go to the polls to elect uh, all of the House of Representatives, our lower House of Congress, and about a third of the Senate, the upper chamber. We also have elections across uh, the states, so for governor positions, for secretary of state positions, and other state offices. So this means a couple things. First, it determines, first and foremost, who will control Congress for the next two years. So that's the biggest thing. Um, Also really sets the scene for 2024, what things might look like in the next presidential election, and also makes some real important changes at the state level, too, for what it means for uh, election uh, institutions for election confirmations and whatnot going into 2024. And the general feeling is that people are preparing to reject democratic control of the bodies in Washington. <laughs> Well, that seems to be the way the polls are going. And that's pretty expected. As you noted, it's normal for the party in power to lose some seats in this election as kind of voters show their uh, you know, frustration or lack of satisfaction with the president that's uh, in power. Um, you, the Democrats have only had a very slim majority in the House and has been really even with uh, with Republicans in the Senate. Uh, so the fact that they would lose some seats in both was was uh, somewhat predicted. It's looking like the House will go to the Republicans. I think everyone would be very surprised if that uh, was not the case. The Senate is still neck and neck. However, there are several key races that are essentially a dead heat going into tomorrow. So uh, the Senate could really go either way. And it's important to note we may not know for a few days. Um, some of those races may go into runoffs or need a few extra days to count, to count the ballots. Tell us a little bit more about what would happen there for to Joe Biden's plans were everything to shift to the right? Sure. So what would mainly happen is gridlock. You would see a lot of bills coming up through Republican House and or Senate uh, that would obviously not make it past the president's desk, but would be a lot of just legislation out there on the table for uh, Republicans to really agenda set, prioritize their issues and put things out there. Uh, But those wouldn't get past Biden. At the same time, Biden can't really put through any of his policies or reforms anymore either. So a lot of the big bills we saw this last year um, with, you know, health 
healthcare, with climate, these kinds of things, uh, those we really just grind to a halt. So that's what we would see legislation-wise. I think we'll also see a lot of new investigations from the House that are um, ones the Republicans have been itching for, if you will, to go after Hunter Biden, to go after the Afghanistan withdrawal, even some murmurings of trying to impeach Biden, though I think that's a bit unlikely. One thing that has ferociously come under the spotlight is the fact that there is a large portion of American voters who still believe that Donald Trump should be president and that the fact that democracy seems to be very much under the spotlight here. Well, that's very true. And indeed, uh, it's uh, estimated that over 300 so-called election deniers are on the ballot for tomorrow, again, both in uh, national and state level uh, offices. And that reflects what we see in the Republican Party. We're still about 60 percent of Republicans uh, still think that there was voter fraud or think that the uh, 2020 election was stolen from Trump. Obviously, Trump himself has continued to repeat that narrative multiple times just in these past few days and over the last week. Um, And it really has taken root. And again, that's one of the concerns is that many of these individuals will then be in these positions of power that could really muddy up the 2024 election if they are in the positions to be confirming, certifying election results at either the state or federal level and uh, double back down on that election fraud uh, kind of narrative. And we also have the, the the added problem that to a large group of the, the electorate as well, they are not that concerned about democracy because they have pressing issues such as the cost of living. I mean, an astonishing headline in the New York Post pushing people to vote to the right. Vote with your wallet. <laughs> yes, I would say the Democrats and Biden in particular have really been trying to make this an election about democracy, saying democracy is on the ballot, et cetera. And that really hasn't taken firm root. I think they've activated some of their base with that message. But we know that out of all the polls that ask people to rank their issue of importance, the economy, inflation, these are the things that are above and beyond, first and foremost, on voters' minds, with democracy kind of lagging behind at 10% or less. Obviously, abortion is an issue also this year, and we know that is a motivating factor for some voters. I think uh, they'll probably get the bump more in districts where Democrats already had an edge, but we'll see if that does uh, push Democrats over the line in some suburban districts that are a bit more competitive. And we also have that big problem that you you mentioned that the Democrats and Joe Biden were pushing for the, the democracy ticket, but how hard Joe Biden is able to push is something that's also under the spotlight. He looks weary. <laughs> well, it's true that, it, and it's interesting that really Biden did not come out hard on the campaign trail as one would maybe expect for a current president to do. Um, his wife, Jill Biden, was out probably more than he was. Uh, Barack Obama was out over this last week. So it's an indication of, again, this fact that the president has had very low approval ratings. Some candidates have not wanted to uh, link up as closely with him as some uh, as some may have, may have liked. And again, this election, it's always a bit of a badgering of the president who's in power. But I think the scale of the loss will be an indication to Democrats of what they're looking at for 2024 and what kind of pressures there might be on Biden to either stay the course and be the nominee again or to pass the baton to someone new. Who would they pass the baton to, given <laughs> the fact that, that you know, the Democrat Biden was, the, you know, the, the obvious choice a couple of years ago. But the obvious choice from the Republicans' point of view is very much Donald Trump, given what he was saying this weekend. That's exactly right. And I think that is uh, very difficult for the Democrats right now to know who would be next. Unfortunately, probably the only figure with lower approval ratings than Biden lately has been Kamala Harris. So I think the uh, person that many thought would be the next in line uh, is also not polling well at all. 
So it's really a somewhat open field for Democrats. Uh, it's a bit tricky for them to start suggesting they would challenge the president if he's still planning to run. So Democrats are in a bit of a bind with that right now. I think everyone's sort of waiting to see if or when Trump will announce. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he announces a run sometime soon after the midterms. And I think a lot of candidates will make their call after knowing that. Judy Norman, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come in a moment, we head to Sharm el-Sheikh, where we'll be joined by our correspondent, Carlotta Rabella, and we will get the latest from Ukraine. Stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. COP27, the UN Climate Change Conference, began yesterday. Its location this year is Egypt, with 120 world leaders expected there in the next couple of weeks. And Carlotta Rabello, Monocle 24 senior producer who's there on the ground at Sharm el-Sheikh. Good morning, Carlotta. Good morning, Emma. So this time last year, you were in chilly, foggy Glasgow. Now you are in a luxury Egyptian resort. How does that change the mood for a large climate change conference? Well, I don't know about me personally being at a luxury (laughs) Egyptian resort, uh, but I get your point there. It certainly is a change of scenery. Uh, It couldn't be more different than uh, Glasgow. One thing I will say, though, it is the level of organization has been impeccable so far. From the moment you land at the airport, you have dedicated lanes for COP27, people greeting you there, making sure you have all the right documentation to go through immigration and customs uh, as well. Um, And it's been quite straightforward to move around the city. They have, um, Sharm el Sheikh is quite vast, uh, it's quite a very long uh, city because um, it's all towards the coast, the rest is desert, uh, but it's quite a, um, a healthy network of buses moving us around between the different COP27 uh, venues and events. How does it feel to, to be at an enormous climate change event when you are in a, a place where lots of tourists come and they all come by plane? Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, uh, a conversation that I feel like regardless of our COP is held, always happens. You might recall last year, um, the amount of uh, world leaders, uh, Joe Biden included, who decided to stay in Edinburgh rather than Glasgow. And instead of taking the train every day to go to COP, it was, uh, you know, a, a convoy with his signature vehicle, the Beast, and several other protective uh, vehicles behind him, too. Um and last year, even within the UK, uh, I had to fly one of the ways just because of how impossible it was to get train tickets. Now here, the possibility of a train, unless I could embark on a two-week journey, was not on the table. Um, and everyone is arriving by plane. Um, but you do see some of the efforts in people trying to mitigate that and at least limit while they're in town the amount of private uh, trips that they are making with private vehicles, I mean. Okay, so so people are sort of at least showing that they're doing something. It all kicked off yesterday. Tell us what happened. 
Yes. So yesterday was the official start of COP27. It was the day uh, there was the official opening and where the UK officially uh, handed over to Egypt, uh, taking over the presidency uh, of the uh, Conference of Nations. Uh, now, today and tomorrow are the high-stake days. It's the days that all the world leaders are here. So yesterday we had a glimpse of a few of them that had already arrived, uh, including uh, United Nations Antonio Guterres, uh, of course, who spoke to the press about some of the goals uh, of having uh, COP27 happening here uh, in Egypt and how they can move the conversation along from uh, last year's edition and not only deliver on the commitments made in Paris years ago, but also move the conversation along from yesterday. Uh, last year in Glasgow. Because last year in Glasgow, they sort of almost crossed the line with agreement, but it didn't happen, did it? No, and um, uh, I think it's been fair to describe last year um, as a bit of uh, a failure, uh, even if it is just for the fact that there was so much expectation. Now, it did deliver on some quite significant things. Um, there was a, a landmark agreement with Costa Rica and a few of other Latin nations for what they are can do in the region, uh, which was seen very much as them trying to lead the way in the Americas. Um, but in terms of a global cooperation agreement, the fact that the, the, not all countries were able to uh, uh, to agree on the, the goal that everyone was so much hoping for uh, made the outcome um, not uh, as, as desired. But uh, focusing on this year, um, it has to be said that the fact that it's being held in Egypt is hugely significant. You know, um, more and more climate change and uh, climate initiatives, uh, people are recognizing that it ties in with everything, including food security, which, as you know, for uh, the Middle East and North Africa region um, and the African continent as well, it is a huge issue. Uh, so it is important that the spotlight is here. It allows for countries from the area, from the region, to be on the spotlight rather than the, you know, the big heavy hitters that we are used to um, from the US to the UK. Uh, to the Scandinavian nations. Uh, and it's really nice to be able to be here and have those nations be on the spotlight for a change. It, it's one of those great focuses. I mean, if you just look at what's happening in Egypt, I mean, there were reports coming out in the last few days about the effect of climate change on the Nile, for example. And it means that, you know, there will be increased droughts because there is less water flowing down the Nile, and that is due to climate change. I mean, how much is this an opportunity for that part of the world to have a spotlight shone on it and for um, for definitive action to either at least be pr to, to at least be promised oh uh, the when yesterday when uh, egypt officially uh, took over um, egypt's foreign minister sami shukri uh, who was elected as cop27 president one of the first things uh, that was said was you know how this is a time for nations to move away from pledges and actually uh, deliver on this with meaningful action enough of like these promises and she was highlighting this precisely her country and the region and how you know over here is no longer a luxury to try to uh, decide whether or not climate change matters you know the consequences that if things don't change inevitably we will all face are being accelerated in this part of the world and um, they highlighted how geopolitical challenges uh, 
shouldn't stay in the way of derailing or delaying these actions. And um, one of the things as well that they touched upon last year, but it has become clear that they really want to make it a thing this year as well, is the idea of you know climate financing and loss and damage finance and financing, understanding that um, natural disaster uh, related to climate and um, the havoc that it uh, it wrecks in regions and in cities. Uh, is hugely costly and it will delay years of development and countries need to come together and uh, implement this fund uh, where there is uh, the funds to help nations when they are afflicted uh, by natural disaster and that we no longer can um, uh, deny uh, the impact that it has on our everyday lives. Carlotta, finally, what should we be looking out for today? So today is uh, the official start of the high-level segment of the summit. So we will be hearing from an array of world leaders between today and tomorrow. Uh, now, today we can expect uh, to hear from Egypt uh, as the host country, uh, but also uh, uh, from a lot of the small island nations and from a lot of the African nations too. So I will, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the region here um, wants to make sure the international community takes home with them. And and also figure out who uh, who made the trip, who bothered to come to Egypt, uh, if I may say so myself. Uh, we know how these um, uh, events with global leaders, uh, for them, might be might feel quite samey. So the fact that uh, leaders decided to come here on its own is a huge sign. So looking forward to seeing who's actually in the room. I like that expression, people can be bothered to come, because, I mean, obviously the, the British Prime Minister couldn't, come at one point and now he can come and is coming um but the, there is that feeling of weariness isn't there that you know when when it's just another one of these meetings well, yeah, of course. Of course, there is that feeling. And I think highlighted from by everything we've been discussing about the fact that, uh, sadly, uh, over the past few editions, it hasn't delivered what those at the forefront of not only the action, but the consequences of climate change um, have been warning for years. You know, it's quite tough to be the minister of an island or the prime minister or the president of an island nation where every year you see your water level rise you see cities at risk every year you have um uh, your food impacted by climate by drought and then you come here and people cannot agree on a 0 0.5 degree um uh, difference or they cannot agree on instead of 2035 2030 and when you're everyday faced with your country slowly disappearing and your people dying these meetings no longer seem like just another one. Every edition is a, a pledge for survival. Carlos Rubello, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Sharm el-Sheikh. The time here in London is 7.30am. A quick look now at some of the other headlines. Kiev residents have been told to prepare to leave if there is a total loss of power in the Ukrainian capital. The mayor warned people they must prepare for no electricity, water or heat as temperatures drop below freezing. Meanwhile, President Zelensky says Russia is preparing more attacks on critical energy infrastructures. Four and a half million people are currently without power across Ukraine. Apple says China's COVID policy is hampering its efforts to make and ship new iPhones. The company says restrictions at a plant in Shenzhou have significantly reduced manufacturing output. The move is expected to have a significant impact on Apple's quarterly sales.
And Irish airliner Ryanair has posted its largest after-tax profits in its history for the first half of its financial year. The company says it's earned almost 1.4 billion euros in the six months to the end of September. It flew a record 95 million passengers in that time. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, as we've just been hearing in the news, people living in Kyiv have been told to prepare to leave if there's a total loss of power. The mayor of the Ukrainian capital has warned citizens they must prepare for no electricity, water or heat as temperatures drop below freezing. Meanwhile, is the Biden administration privately encouraging Ukraine's leaders to say they're open to negotiating with Russia to bring an end to the conflict? Well, let's hear more from Alia Chandra, the editor-in-chief of Euromaidan. She's in Kyiv for us this morning. Good morning, Alia. Good morning. Well, just bring us up to date with these warnings that that you've been given to say you must prepare for for no power, no water for winter. Well, <clears throat> our mayor has said that uh, Kievans must be ready for all scenarios, and all scenarios does include um, this possibility that Russia will strike absolutely all critical infrastructure. Um, but so far, there are no plans, concrete plans for any evacuation. He just asked everybody who has relatives living in the countryside and other cities to make plans to leave to them um, if that happens. But, um, of course, uh, it's the we're heading into winter with no certainty as to whether we will have power or heat or um, because... Because um, Ukraine still lacks the necessary air defense to intercept all the Russian missiles. And even if we did, I mean, there's no 100% chance to that, that it will be um, successful as because no air defense can give 100% chance uh, of, of intercepting them. Um, but what is true is that our air defense, most of our air defense complexes, they're um, anti-aircraft defense, not anti-missile defense. They're, uh, most of them are old Soviet models and um, our, basically our <laughs> Air Force chiefs, they stress this constantly that Ukraine does not have anti-missile defense, it has anti-air defense. So, of course, this is something that um, must be boosted greatly and this is something that Ukraine needs help with, anti-missile defense. Um but overall, of course, I mean, this just the situation, it just underlines the fact that there will be no peace in Ukraine and there will be no stability in the world and, until Russia gets out of Ukraine, until Ukraine is able to fully defend its borders. And... Um, and we're going to be we're going to end up living in this state until until we win this war, basically. And, you know, it's, it's a new reality that we need to adapt to. And um, it's it's actually surprising how quickly people are adapting. They're making uh, they're buying generators, power, um, power batteries, um, stocking up on food, as the mayor asked. Um, so he actually asked people to make stocks of food and canned, uh, of canned food and water at home. Um, so this is what people are doing. Are uh, people ready to leave when they when they hear when you hear the message saying you must be prepared to evacuate? Uh, do you, are people actually doing this? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, if you look at Ukraine's regions everywhere, n not all people leave. It's not like 100% people leaving, even from the war zone. There are always those that will stay put and they will not leave their homes. There are always those that cannot evacuate because they're medically fragile. 
Um, so even in the frontline cities of Bakhmut, for instance, people are just sticking onto their homes and, and volunteers come and they can't make them leave. So definitely it won't be like the whole city is empty. There are people that will stay and they will survive in any, in any case and without the power, water and heat. Um, but uh, uh, are people making plans to leave? I'm sure that, that many are looking up for backup options and many are inquiring with their relatives. Uh, but of course, many people don't have where to go and they will end up just trying to get into countries of the EU, I'm sure. And this is another wave of energy refugees, so to speak. Yeah. Ali, let's move on briefly, if we can, onto these words that um, that broke in the Washington Post over the weekend, which is the suggestions that the Biden administration is talking to Ukraine to say, look, at least say that you are open to negotiating with Russia to bring an end to the conflict, not as an uh, with the purpose of pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table, to, but to make sure that Kiev retains the support of other countries and their citizens when other citizens are beginning to see their bills increase and and the sort of the knock-on effects of the of the conflict in Kiev they may push back against it but of course the horrors of the war aren't going away uh, well the our leaders in president and Zelensky they constantly stress that Ukraine is open to negotiations as soon as Russia gets out of Ukraine and uh <laughs> Frankly, I don't know like what what there is to negotiate about um, after Russia held these sham referendums and basically annexed uh, a huge chunk of Ukrainian territory. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that words should correspond with reality and words should correspond with deeds. And, well, in Ukraine, any any such sort of rhetoric will be hugely unpopular after everything that, that Russia has created. And it would be, frankly, just seen as absurd um, because, I, I, well, prior to Russia's escalation and prior to the war crimes that were uncovered in, in, um, in northern Ukraine after Russia withdrew, uh, basically Ukraine was very much open to negotiations, but this avenue sort of closed after we we saw everything that Russia was doing to us. After all of the uh, after all of the genocidal rhetoric, after all of the genocidal intents, and I mean, it's it's just like, would you be pushing the Jews to negotiate with with Hitler during the Second World War? Would that be okay? I mean, if the Jews would that be seen as an okay step? Basically, I think. I don't think that that it's even good going down this road and playing with the idea of 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 forcing Ukraine to negotiate with a country that's intent on genociding it. I mean, that that's not a very constructive step to make, I think. But if, well, until until Russia gets out, until it stops its aggression, then we can negotiate all we want. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us on the Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Twenty Four. It's 8.38 in Paris, which is where we head next for today's newspaper review. I'm delighted to say the journalist and author Agnès Parier is on the line. Good morning, Agnès. How's Paris? 
Uh, well, it's it's grey this morning. It always is. That's its purpose. <laughs> um, okay, what's happening in the papers? Well, you know that France is uh, very serious uh, on art and and especially cinema. And L'Express, as uh, uh, the French weekly newspaper, has an interesting uh, story today about uh, the Iranian actress Tarane Alidusti. So you may know not know the name, but you will remember her face. Uh, she was, for instance, the star in the client that got the Oscar uh, Best Foreign Film in, in 2017 and more recently um, a film that was at the Cannes Film Festival this year and which I really urge you to uh, to see when it comes out uh, near you. It's Leila and her brothers and it's actually the story of a very strong female character within a very male um, Iranian family and Tarane Alidusti um, said yesterday on her Instagram account that she's not going anywhere. I mean, she could, you know, she could uh, uh, go to uh, somewhere abroad and, uh, and and work from there. But she said, I'm uh, quitting acting for the moment because I'm focusing on the movement, on the uh, the fight for women's rights in Iran. I'm not going anywhere. And um, if uh, there are consequences, let's uh, you know, uh, let be it. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a very brave stance uh, from uh, that actress. And let us not forget that uh, the Iranian regime is often uh, very harsh on its artists, especially those that are successful abroad. Uh, we know, for instance, that Jafar Panahi, the great uh, film director, is under house arrest. Um, and so we'll be watching keenly, especially in France, uh, what happens to Tehrani and Idusti in the next uh, few days, the next few weeks. Is there, and yes, is the assumption that there will be conf- consequences for Tehrani and Alidusti? Well, you know, they are walking on eggshells, of course, because uh, she's very well known um, outside of Iran. Uh, but so is Jafar Panahi. And, uh, you know, he was imprisoned many times. He's under house arrest. Um, so, uh, um, you know, they will not shy away from from uh, um, imprison them, for instance. Uh, but at least it will be well known and, and, and uh, um, watched uh, by uh, the world at large. Uh, Let's move on to a a fabulous story. If you are young and you are French, you get 400 euros to enjoy culture. Oh, yes, but that that's not new. <laughs> I know, it's wonderful. Uh, that, that's a couple of years ago, one of the many initiatives uh, by uh, President Macron. Uh, yes, so when you reach, reach 18 in France now, you have a credit, uh, 400 euros, which you can use anytime, uh, any any way you like, but uh, to buy books, to go to the theatre, for the opera, the ballet, anything cultural, basically. Um, and uh, But, uh, of course, you know, a lot of... Uh, um, Criticism also has been uh, um, aimed at this program because we found out that um, uh, youngsters are mostly, uh, at least in the first year, were mostly using their 400 euros to buy comic strips and uh, and manga. So it's not the high art that perhaps was sort of dreamt of by uh, uh, the French uh, culture uh, minister, ministry. But at least it's culture. So now 
because the past culture, as we call it in France, is, has been so successful, it's been extended uh, and doubled, actually, 800 euros per class, uh, per classroom and per teacher. And the great thing about it is that teachers can use it directly. They can go online, book their tickets. They don't have to go through the administration of, of the school uh, to and wait for a green light. And so it was uh, implemented at the beginning of this year. Now we know that half of... Uh, teachers and class, uh, classrooms in France have benefited from it and have booked tickets. Um, and even more importantly, we know what uh, they have booked. And it looks as if, you know, high art now uh, is on the menu because uh, they've gone um, mostly for uh, an evening at the opera or even ballet. And that's extraordinary because when you think uh, that uh, a lot of pupils in France from uh, uh, unprivileged backgrounds will have had the chance um, to go to the opera or, or to to go and watch ballet. I mean, that's extraordinary when you think of it. And that extra money means that the actual uh, budget uh, for artistic uh, activities within the education ministry has tripled. Um, so, uh, and if um, it looks as if it's it's been very successful, it will be extended uh, to uh, um, pupils of, from the age of 10, because for the moment it's it's from the age of 12. I'd like to see anyone try and get a 10-year-old into the opera, but does it does it now mean that, um, that we now have the teachers who are able to say, OK, we're spending less money on the Bon Dessiné and a bit more on Debussy? Well, it's because teachers are now, uh, you know, making uh, the choices, uh, not only the 18-year-olds. So, so it's great because, you know, you've got both ends of the spectrum, if you'd like. Um, so, you know, when and you reach 18, you're making your own decision. But when you're younger, you leave it to your teacher to enlighten you. It's an interesting thing because actually, ultimately, it's the government subsidising French culture. Well, of course. Of course, as you know, culture is a very, very big sector in France. So it's a, you could call it a virtuous circle. Um, artists, uh, you know, uh, get uh, an audience uh, through, uh, through the state and through subsidies. But in the end, you know, everybody gains from it. Uh, artists, uh, cultural institutions and, and young pupils. Agnès Parier, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue with arts and culture on The Globalist now with the journalist Amarose Abrams. Hello, Amarose. Hello, good Gorgeous morning. to see you. Um, thank you for joining us on Monocle 24 again. Now, we've just heard a moment ago from Agnès Parier in Paris saying the Pass Culture, which is this 400 euro dollop of lovely cash for every 18 year old is being doubled it's being extended it's a sort of a wonderful government program to to sort of boost culture nationally different story here in the uk very very different story i mean especially i mean i heard you talking about opera there and um as part of the leveling up um they have taken a lot of money outside out of london and redistributed it around the country and, and the arts council have but one of the things 
that has been hit the hardest is English National Opera, which has lost all its funding. And in replacement of that, it is getting £17 million to rethink its business model, potentially move to Manchester. Which is... <laughs> it's, 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 it sort of strikes me as slightly baffling because Manchester already has Opera North. Yes. So it's like, why would why would they want to double up? You can sort of understand in principle the idea to sort of share the spoils of, of, of British culture, but it did, I think it sort of knocked the arts world for six at the weekend, didn't it? It has. I think people are still reeling from it. People still have not really kind of gathered themselves in response to this because it's um, it's just, it's taking money out of... Um, a sector that's already had a lot of cuts and it's also taking uh, huge amounts of money from institutions which have struggled like the ICA and um, Camden Arts Centre and which is losing a colossal over £300,000 a year and it's also you know we've had the pandemic we've had um you know, crisis following that, you know, the cost of living crisis. And then they're taking, it seems, the most money from the theatre sector. Which is an, it was just a really strange thing to do. What struck me was the the fact that the names that are being hit by this are globally famous. Yeah. So what you then ask is, what about the institutions which aren't a, a destination if you're coming from New York or visiting from Berlin? What happens to the smaller places? These are, these are the ones that we have to look out for. And these are the institutions which are maybe... Maybe they aren't losing a huge amount. So I've been going through the list. It's a very long list. <laughs> but it's like you go through and, in a, and on some level you're thinking, oh, fantastic, so Birmingham Ballet's getting more money. And then on the, on the other hand, you're thinking, oh, that's like five, ten grand less for the smaller companies. And that is just going to be a huge, huge, huge loss for them. It's it's a part-time salary. It's, you know, it's something to, you know, for stage dressing and things like that. It's a funny thing because, is it? I mean, it just looks like it's, sort of, dare I say it, the highbrow culture that's been targeted in particular. Would I be right in assuming that? I think it is. Though it has been pushed out to regions. But there's um, a lot of money that's been diverted to more local museums. So um, uh, like Cornwall local museums, Bristol local museums and things like that. And what does this do for British soft power? I think we kind of know the answer to this one. Um, The fact that the United Kingdom's arts and culture is arguably the one thing that that sustains it beyond anything when it comes to political change or or economic change or or, or whatever. Um, People still do come to the United Kingdom because of what we offer here for culture. Absolutely. For the theatre. And I mean, it's putting so much pressure on the theatre sector. And it's people are not, as much as people do go to Cornwall on holiday, people aren't going to Cornwall for the museums. And um, it's, I think it's going to take more than three years to turn Cornwall's museums into a global attraction. Um, and, you know, not only are they famous, but it's also a lucrative industry. And I wonder what will happen um, to, I mean, places like the Donmar Warehouse. I can't see that moving outside of London, which would get it more money but okay well we'll have to follow this one to see yes. what to see what happens in terms of what, what what space the united kingdom occupies in the world of arts and culture um tell us a little bit about the fact we, we've been talking about cop we've been in sharm el sheikh already today but where does cop 27 over cross into the world of arts and culture it's huge right because 
partly because of the way the world works uh, for arts professionals. And I think we all really enjoyed hearing about Seoul and... We all have, and everyone went to Paris, which is an easier trip from the UK. But as much as we talked about the climate crisis um, over the last couple of years, um, the art world is picking up a pace again. And you've got the fairs, you've got travelling shows, you've got sales, you've got shipping. It's like like any big industry, there are so many facets to it which need addressing. And on top of that, you have the artists, many of whom, and we have um, Cecilia Vicuña's big installation in the Turbine Hall at the moment. We have a lot of artists speaking out against it while the industry kind of does um, cost us. And um, uh, so every every COP, I think there is a lot of conversation. And one really interesting initiative that I read about in the art newspaper yesterday was um, Art 2030, and it's Art for Hope, which was, and it's the Hope Forum, which was launched during the Biennale, and um, it will run with the General Assembly and with COP27, and it reacts in real time with conversations and comments from key art operatives on what's happening and how we can react and act. Finally, I do love this story. You have a sketch, an oil sketch, <laughs> languishing in a corner yes. in Rotterdam of a museum. <laughs> Everybody goes, ah, oh, it's not a Rembrandt. Not a Rembrandt. Not a Rembrandt. It is a Rembrandt. It is. How so do we know that? <laughs> well, well, um, apparently a uh, Jeroen Hiltai, who was an art historian, was looking, writing a book about Rembrandt and doing some research at Museum Bredius, and he thought, I think this is a Rembrandt, and he was dismissed. He was told, don't be silly, it's too, it's not good enough. And then they, uh, two years later, we get a confirmation it is, in fact, an oil sketch by Rembrandt. So it looks kind of like an underpainting. It looks a bit kind of... Um, it looks of, like a Rembrandt, actually. It does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no expert, but yep, that looks a bit like a Rembrandt. It's got the Rembrandt glow. And, um, yeah, so I think everyone's really excited about it. But what's confusing everybody is that it looks very much like an earlier painting, but it can't be a sketch for an earlier painting. So why was he painting this raising of the cross again, the same motif? Emma Rose Abrams, we'll find out all by going to Rotterdam to having a look at it. Thank you so much indeed for joining us here on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle 24. today a picture of a buzzing ball of cactus bees has been announced as the winner of this year's wildlife photographer of the year the image is a delightfully busy one as you would imagine with a couple of bees on the approach to landing in the background rather like aircraft in the stack well to tell us more i'm joined by ros kidman cox who's the chair of this year's wildlife photographer of the year competition jury good morning ros Good morning. So we now have this wonderfully difficult but exciting task of describing photographs on the radio. Um, <laughs> so, so tell us what the winner looks like. Well, it's um, a, an eye-level image um, and it's both a scene. Um, it was shot in Texas um, on a sandy soil and it's also a story in a sense. So you have 
coming towards you, a ball of bees, and in the center, you can't see this as a female cactus bee, surrounded by males. She's released a pheromone, a scent as she's come out of her birth, her virgin um, birth um, um, hole, as it were, on the ground, along with lots of other females and the males are attracted and I think what's extraordinary is also the picture is wide angle so you can see coming towards you um, two other male bees so it's full of energy um, it's very intriguing um, it's surprising and it tells a story which you want to find out more about. Tell us a little bit about what else was in the competition well, I'd like to mention um, the other grand title winner, which is um, from the youth section, the Young Wildlife Photographer of the Year, which is a very different image. It's of um, the baleen of um, a brooder's whale, which um, most people will know humpback whales. Um, and they, they're filter feeders. When they open their mouths, um, they sort of... The, they will feed on whatever um, is rushing in with the water, in this case, anchovies. But what this young person has done, 16 years old from Thailand, is actually concentrate on the baleen, on the colours and the form and texture. So it's a very imaginative close-up image, which at first you don't know what you're looking at, um, but it fulfils what the competition is looking for, which is fresh and original, surprising pictures that actually hold your attention um, in some way, whether it's aesthetically or emotionally. And I'd say at this point, um, after your previous interview, that this is actually both an art exhibition and an exhibition which is showing pictures that um, are in praise of the extraordinary um, nature that we have on this planet. Um, it also champions the art of photography of wildlife. What's glorious about these two pictures is, is, as you said in the first one with the bees, there's a story going behind it which isn't immediately obvious. The, the, the beauty of Berlin picture, when you first look at it, you don't actually know what's happened. They're pictures that require explanation, don't they? They do, but then um, in the exhibition, which is in the Natural History Museum, it's just opened. Um, there are a hundred images there. They all have little stories attached with them, so they're not just titled with the photographer's name. You can actually find out more. And part of the um, reason that the Natural History Museum launches this huge exhibition, which then travels the world, is and to inspire and inform people to create advocates for the planet, which is one of the, um, the main aims of this huge institution. You mentioned um, the fact that it's all happening at the Natural History Museum and it's a, it's a new kind of space. Tell us what's different this year. Well, I think the Natural History Museum is one of the most beautiful buildings in London and the interior space is something that... Um, is worth looking at. If you look up into the ceilings, you've got amazing architecture and in um, and actually artwork, but um, they've transformed one of the big galleries from what used to be in a sort of cathedral-like space. It was quite dark um, and they've made use of the light in a different way. But the exhibition there, what's the, the same as it is an annual exhibition is that the pictures are backlit 
so that um, you, you have this glorious light shining through, which in a way is how the judges have seen those pictures. Ros, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was Ros Kidman-Cox, the chair of this year's Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition jury. And if you were interested in that, then please, please, please go to the National Natural History Museum. The display is on until July next year, so plenty of time. That's all we have time for today's programme, however. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers are Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager is Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London, and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>